This is an RNZ podcast. Last week, News Hub's special correspondent Patrick Gow was all over the media talking about his documentary for TV Channel 3, Patrick Gow on Booze. And it was pretty personal, with the personality himself admitting he had a problem. But recognising that plenty of other people do too, 3 ran a live discussion the next night in which Patrick Gow took a back seat and experts had their say. On newsroom.co.nz, the co-editor Mark Jennings, who's a former news boss at TV3, pointed out that plonking a group of talking heads into the middle of primetime doesn't happen much on New Zealand TV these days. And in spite of COVID, climate change and conflict on the rise, our main channels have simply stuck with light entertainment, he said. Now, it's not just on TV where experts who dwell on the details of big issues have a hard time cutting through in our media. And with that in mind, Australian journalists a decade ago launched The Conversation, an online outlet to make academics' expertise available in articles for free. Now, you don't need to create a new media outlet just to do that, but The Conversation, backed by the country's universities, employed journalists as editors to make their wisdom more readable and available to any other media outlet that cared to run it. Now, The Conversation took off in other countries from 2012 onwards, including this one. Five years ago, the conversation fired up here as an offshoot of the Aussie operation with one single editor, ex-RNZ science specialist Veronica Maduna. Five years later, she's now in a team of three and the conversation is backed by all eight New Zealand universities and led by former Listener Magazine and Penguin Books editor Finlay MacDonald. So more bodies are publishing more stories from more of our academic experts on the conversation but is it cutting through in a media marketplace with more competition than ever for people's eyeballs? It puts academic expertise together with um, journalistic skill and flair and creates a kind of product, for want of a better term, that's unique but extremely valuable and powerful. The original idea for the conversation goes back to 2009 when a a, a clever guy named uh, Andrew Jaspin, who was a British-Australian journalist and a fairly storied editor in his own right, just had this light bulb moment that universities were essentially big virtual newsrooms just waiting to be tapped. He came up with the idea of putting journalists together with academics, but the idea worked, and you can't say that about every startup, you know, and it's really still only 10 years old. Uh, but it's gone global in that time and is an increasingly visible part of the mediascape. And I find that really fascinating that there are creative solutions still. And the media has changed so much in that, what, 12 or 13 years since, since then. But this is a model that you know has endured, adapted and been able to expand. I think it was a model that was very much of its time. You know, it coincided with all the big changes in the media as well and the advent of social media and just the digital revolution, it turned out to be a, just a really good idea and it continues to uh, to prove that point. Just take an example. So I've been looking at this program on how we had you know that terrible highway crash last Sunday. A lot of pundits and campaigners have been, for example, criticising the sums spent on road safety advertising. What a waste of money. That could be going on on road barriers. And there is some academic literature I found going back 20 years analysing do advertising campaigns on road safety save lives? I mean, is that the sort of thing that if you want to, you can pick up the phone, nag an expert or two and try and get a comment piece about that? Yes, absolutely. There's two ways we work. We commission directly from academic authors or we receive pitches from them and we decide what to commission or not depending on our capacity and so on. Uh, But that's exactly how it works. And it's pretty standard journalism 
elsewhere in the mainstream to to ring experts when you need context, background and analysis for, for any subject. The beauty of the conversation is that we, in effect, take out the middleman uh, or woman and we commission the expert themselves to write about the area they have expertise in. And then the journalism comes in at the next stage uh, in terms of editing and, and publishing. Yeah. But a lot of academics, when they write, uh, I mean, they, they are kind of instructed to effectively or trained to write kind of the opposite of a gripping, concise, compelling article. Um, you know, their training will tell them to include as much detail as possible often and not to take any kind of shortcuts. So how do you get a, a short, punchy, concise article out of someone for whom that's just not what they're used to doing? Well, that is the real challenge, I guess, and that's where the experienced journalists who work for the conversation come in. There are many uh, academic um, experts and authors who take to journalistic writing like ducks to water, but for others it's a, it's a real learning curve. As journalists, we're all t- taught about you know the inverted pyramid um, of the way you order your information in a story um, to make it compelling. Quite often the core information in an academic journal article will be a summary at the end, which would, you know, was probably where most journalists turn when they're reading academic literature. But for those who uh, want to do it and enjoy it, I think it can be really rewarding. And perhaps academics are used to working with longer time frames as well, but you're on a, a deadline like any news service. These these pieces have to be out daily. Is this a case of you, um, sometimes the academics kind of dreading almost your call, like they've got enough to do and suddenly a conversation's on the line saying, give me 800 words on this topic and you're giving them extra work. If an academic expert gets in touch because something's happened and they want to write about it quickly, that's a dream day for us, uh, as long as the subject is newsworthy and so on. A really good example of that was when the Tonga eruption happened, happened earlier this year. There's a volcanologist at Auckland University named Shane Cronin who happens to be one of possibly only two experts on that particular volcano. He got in touch with us immediately after the news broke and turned a piece around overnight New Zealand time that went on to be read about a million times around the world. So it is a challenge for some academics to get their heads around uh, the the tight deadline timeframes of daily digital journalism because that's what it is. But many um, find it liberating, I think, um, once they realise that they don't have to... I mean, it has to be evidence-based, but it doesn't have to be footnoted and referenced in the same way that their um, academic writing would be. So we help, and uh, they've got to be willing. So how do you know, though, that it's cutting through? Because your stuff goes out on a whole lot of other platforms because it's free to use uh, to other bona fide media outlets that, that want to. That's right. I mean, we publish everything under the Creative Commons license um, as a not-for-profit, and mainstream media are free to uh, republish what they want. And that, and that is the way that our content gets massively amplified, to be honest. Sometimes we will get extraordinarily high reads on our own website and platform, um, but very often it's when the likes of RNZ and other media organisations in New Zealand and overseas pick it up that um, the numbers start to climb. We we track um, our metrics as they're known, just like every digital organisation does these days. Um, we have quite good deep analytics. 
and we rely on our republishers adding a, a short code into the URL of, of the stories that they take. We just add them all together and that's how we get those numbers. So there's very serious topics, uh, obviously a lot about COVID because that is a technical issue uh, where a lot of academics have valuable expertise. Uh, there's things about diplomacy, for example, uh, Alexander Gillespie at Waikato University writing about the uh, Chinese challenge in the Pacific. But there's also stuff like, I mean, here among the recent publications, Judy Garland at 100 and how she shaped the modern uh, movie musical Top Gun. Uh, Maverick is a film obsessed with its former self by Eric Harrington at University of Canterbury. So you can you can be as broad and as pop culture as you like, as well as serious? Well, absolutely. I mean, as many departments and disciplines as there are in your average university, there are that many potential subject areas. So our main regional operation, which is based in Australia and Melbourne, have just launched a books and ideas section, which is where some of that stuff is now going we can do fairly conventional um, journalistic styles like reviews and, um, and you know, analysis and historical moments. It's lots of fun. I, you know, I want to see more of that. And what are the top topics? What are the things that have got the analytics going when you've put <laughs> them up online? Clearly, um, at the height of the pandemic, uh, we saw a huge spike in numbers. Uh, I think partly because of that as well, uh, New Zealand's response was of great interest overseas. We There was a period where I think we could pop the name Jacinda Ardern into a headline and be guaranteed of quite high reader numbers um, outside of New Zealand, which was really interesting. That's calmed down a bit. I don't think there's a particularly secret source about which topics will go off and which won't. I think it's the same as most news organisations, and I know it's a cliche, but news you can use, information that people find particularly relevant. Recently in Australia, uh, they published a piece about, which was scientific evidence supporting um, the the practice of removing your shoes before you come inside the house, because it really is a primary hygiene um, tactic. Now, that was read everywhere. That's the kind of thing that, you know, really appeals. But that's true of most news organisations, I think. Sure, and you can imagine other news organisations with a, a broad audience picking up and running that, that sort of content from Absolutely. From it, was, it was republished um, very widely, that piece, yeah. So seeing as you have a keen eye on the analytics, can you power rank your top New Zealand academic contributors? Who's your top three? You've put me on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's a good um, thing you don't look at them that, that so closely and be guided just by top hits. I think all journalists should avoid being a slave to clicks. You know, it, it's that, that's a, that's a one-way trip to you know media hell, really. But we're all slaves to the algorithm to some extent, aren't Indeed. we? I think the most popular piece that we've published in those past five years, or certainly in the past three, was by Suze Wilson from Massey University. Uh, which was looking at Jacinda Ardern's pandemic leadership. Uh, now, for obvious reasons, that was very widely read. Uh, like the p- piece I mentioned previously about the Tongan um, volcanic eruption was another case of, of extremely high reads. Um, but, yeah, you'd, I'd have to go back and actually check what the, <laughs> what the top ten was. So has COVID, I mean, it's changed so many things, for the media, change the focus, and there was a lot in the mainstream media doing explainer-type stuff, even entire podcasts, daily ones, devoted to nothing but COVID developments and so on. Did you feel like perhaps, you know, when the media climbed into COVID in a big way, they're almost like 
parking a tank on your lawn and this this could have been the area you could have cleaned up in? Yes, and I think that that's just an ongoing reality for um, a media platform like ours. There will be crossover and there will be things that journalists can simply react faster to than we can, and we just accept that. But getting a piece of expert analysis of a difficult subject um, from the person who actually understands it best still has a lot of cut through. If you can turn it around quickly, I think it's really valuable to most news organisations to have that as part of their menu of, of offerings, you know. And all of the New Zealand universities are backing this and contributing, uh, which mm-hmm. is where the money comes from, I guess. What is it that they want? For their investment, and are they quite benign owners, or do they, from time to time, you know, give you a nudge and say, "Hey, we want to see more of our people, <laughs> our own staff reflected in this"? Is that that kind of pressure? We maintain um, a high level of uh, editorial independence. It's true that the funding base uh, comes from university memberships, uh, but they tend to understand that it's that the quid pro quo is that we treat their authors very professionally. Uh, and their voices get amplified significantly. And, I mean, it's part of the, the role of, of academics, to some extent, to be public intellectuals. So this is one way that their, um, their knowledge and just the knowledge reservoir that sits in universities can be put in front of, of a much wider audience than, than it ordinarily would. So generally speaking, the universities... Um, are really happy with with the way we work and the way we collaborate with them in much the same way that that um, news organizations are because you know it's it's no secret that you know since the internet arrived you know the the whole journalistic model has changed so resources are squeezed newsrooms are smaller um, it's just it's just harder to to run the kind of operations that that I grew up um, you know learning my journalistic um, chops and you know when advertising uh, you know, was a river of gold. So for for news organisations, the conversation is a lovely, reliable source of quality content. Um, so it's kind of a virtuous circle in that sense. Now, earlier you mentioned that this is available, the content from the conversation New Zealand to other media outlets because of the Creative Commons licensing under those terms. Is that really a key part of, of making this work, that you, know, you have the power of the internet to amplify things, but Creative Commons licensing is this almost this under-discussed, almost, almost secret part of the media, which allows things to be distributed widely, but ownership terms and conditions to remain uh, with authors and content creators? Absolutely. I mean, it's central to the conversations model as a not-for-profit um, organisation. So... While the author retains copyright of their work, the understanding is that it will be published and available free as long as republishers accept the terms and conditions of the Creative Commons licence. And I I don't pretend to understand all of the ins and outs of how Creative Commons works, but essentially you can stipulate how a piece can be republished, uh, what controls sit around it, you know, can it be used commercially, usually not, um, can it be edited? Can the derivatives be made from it? And so on and so forth. So it's quite tightly controlled, but in the process, um, you get uh, the ability to publish free information, which I remember being the uh, the great ideal that was promised by the internet in the early days. 
the early days. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, in earlier times, you were the editor of the Listener magazine, uh, for example, then um, a book book editor at a major publisher as well. So uh, academic publishing, a little bit different. And academic freedom is, seems to be an increasingly hot topic these days in a couple of ways, both for you know, individual academics who might be studying areas that are controversial or, or themselves saying things that are um, perhaps unpopular with some, and also outside pressures, things like um, international influences and corporate funding and sponsorship of university projects and institutions. So is this anything that affects or constricts the conversation, concerns about academic freedom and influence? Well, it's certainly a topic that we've addressed and, and we've had um, experts write about because it's of not just academic freedom, but freedom of expression and, you know, the right freedom of assembly and all of the things that have become quite, um, you know, hot topics during the pandemic and and anti-mask protests and so on and so forth. Uh, We do, we take a lot of care to to vet what is being pitched at us. Um, You know, we're careful about what, what the research uh, is and how it's funded, and we have we have a disclosure statement that all authors are required to um, to fill in on each article they they work on, which where they they disclose any funding that might be relevant to what they're writing about, or any membership of organisations that are relevant. So we try to be as transparent as possible on that front, and that's the best we can do. Yeah, I mean, other parts of the media have been to greater or lesser extents drawn into you know culture wars and claims mm. that they're all subject to wokeness, political correctness, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that, that's becoming really common now. Does that come your way, or are you as a sort of not-for-profit and university-based outlet sort of seen as perhaps being, uh, you know, somehow apart from those sorts of rows? <laughs> no, I think we get drawn into those rows in various ways. I, don't, I think that's inevitable, pretty hard to avoid. I mean, universities themselves are forums for intense debate about all of those issues so that will surface via the conversation in different ways but but generally uh, we we would treat it as a topic uh, you know to be discussed and analyzed openly and honestly as opposed to something to be scared of and where can the conversation go from here in its say next five years i mean are you perhaps a bit hidebound by the fact that you have to have the the eight universities uh, or backing you to do what you do, or is there a way you can draw in another partner, a sponsor, investment if you have want to branch out into I don't know podcast, video, whatever? We could certainly um, branch out in terms of those kind of formats, and and I think that would be part of our our longer term planning. You're right; we are slightly constrained by scale, um, New, as are <laughs> many organisations in New Zealand, um, and, and I would imagine that that while the Growth will continue. Um, it can't. It can't sort of stay on a steep upward trajectory forever. What I would prefer to do is try and broaden our offering, and as I said earlier, try to get more um, authors writing about uh, other areas beyond sort of the core, the core topics of politics and science and and the research around around those areas and health and so on. I want to see more in the arts and humanities uh, and and be able to develop um, a broader stable of authors, of, of routine go-to writers. Uh, so those are kind of the challenges that I face, yeah. 
And would you or could you uh, tap into public funding uh, available to the media because that's now uh, all being reshaped uh, as we speak and, um, you know, public money used to go to public broadcasting and public broadcasters, um, but now to a range of other outlets, that, that could be an avenue for you if you want to expand? Well, I can't see any reason why we shouldn't put our hand up for it. <laughs> the Public Journalism Fund, which of course takes us back to you know conspiracy theories and how the, the government is buying the media and so on, so maybe I'll have to also commission a story about it. Yes, rich pickings in there, I think. And just, <laughs> just finally, though, personally, Finley, I mean, you've been a broadcaster, um, an editor as well, who you know could forward your own opinion in listener editorials when you wanted to and a journalist before that, is it frustrating that you're only really commissioning academics and working with them and their words? And, you know, are there times when you're itching to get back on the tools and have your own say uh, and publish your own stuff? Well, I still can write occasionally as a freelancer and and occasionally I do. But oddly enough, I've uh, there's so much opinion out there now that I've felt less and less inclined to... Um, to add my five cents worth these days. But also, strangely, one of the things I've always enjoyed a lot as a journalist has been hands-on editing. I really do like working with other writers to help them express in the best way possible what they're trying to say. And I find, you know, that the outlet that might once have been writing a column or an editorial is now working with others to achieve the same ends and I still find that really satisfying and finally just just one last little thing the international scope of the conversation is interesting now it's in several countries I guess you know this is a relatively small operation there's three of you working with this range of academics and it's sort of an offshoot of the longer established Australian uh, conversation but does does it actually feel like you're part of a, a truly international network because it's in Spain South Africa the UK, you know, it is it is uh, not covering the whole globe, but certainly it's um, it's global. Yes, it does actually. We we share stories, um, pieces that from New Zealand that would be of interest in the UK or US, for instance, uh, will be pulled across to their home pages, and 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 we do the same with stuff from overseas. We're in fairly regular contact with our colleagues. Uh, in other countries, we work very closely with um, the Melbourne head office, so that's you know that's also a given. So it feels like a very trans-Tasman operation at heart, but it definitely feels international, uh, and that's one of the things I find um, really satisfying about it too. That was Finlay MacDonald, senior editor in New Zealand for The Conversation, an online outlet backed by New Zealand's universities, which publishes articles by their academics and experts, free to read and free for the rest of the media to republish. And this week, The Conversation New Zealand marked five years in operation.